are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello, listeners, those who might be joining us for the first time and those who have been joining us maybe for a long time or maybe just through this series of Romans. Um, welcome back or welcome to this podcast channel. Before I get started today, I want to I clarify something um, real quick. And that is going to be, um, you know, in, in the story, Jesus twice, it talks about in John 2 and then in other accounts later on in his ministry. So at the beginning and the end, there's, there's these two times in which Jesus cleans out the, cleanses out the temple. So in my understanding, as I've studied John 2 and as I've studied the other ones, one was closer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one was towards the end of Jesus' ministry. But aside from that, he cleanses out the temple because he sees things within this temple that's supposed to be holy and his zeal wells up inside of him. His passion for it wells up inside him for his father, uh, for what holiness was supposed to be within the temple. And he makes a whip of cords. We know the story. He drives out people. Um, he drives out all the, the, ca- the ones who are causing this. He drives them out of the temple. I want everybody who listens to my podcast channel to understand this this truth about me. I have a very deep passion and zeal for God's word and for his truth. Um, What I don't want to happen and can easily be something that happens and be very misunderstood. Um, As um, my pastor was given a message yesterday even about Charles Spurgeon, about how he would sell eggs. And he was almost kind of seemingly like very stingy on he would always charge friends, family, brothers, sisters, all this stuff. And he created this name for himself because he would never... um, he would never give anyone discounts. He would never give anyone freebies. He would never just give them out to anybody. And so a lot of people, his critics, would look at him and say, he's a greedy man. He's stingy. But what they didn't know was that he was actually, all the proceeds of what he was selling was going to these two widows in their church. And it was his way of taking care of them. And so I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, for one, I feel Charles Spurgeon probably should have told more people. And then he wouldn't have been misunderstood. However, I'm trying to tell you now that I have a deep passion for truth. And I don't want to come across as haughty. I don't want to come across as arrogant. Um, But I know that when somebody is zealous for truth, just like Jesus was in the temple, it can come across as arrogance. It can come across as, as having a confidence and having even an authority that one doesn't possess in and of themselves. It comes from something deeper, something that is, that is rooted in them. I have a passion for truth. And there's times where I might come across as unloving. But for me, one of the greatest acts of love 
is to help people come into a fuller understanding of truth because it's been manipulated and twisted and, and lost even in many ways in the church today so as to better be sanctified. Because that's what Jesus' prayer is in John 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So for me, one of the greatest acts of love, even though it's at the risk of being misunderstood, even it's at the risk of people thinking, well, that's just an arrogant guy who thinks he has all the answers. I don't think I have all the answers. What I do say is that the answers that I feel that I do have come directly from the word of God and its congruency with each other. Apologetics is a big thing for me. If I have a belief that is not congruent with the fullness of the text, then it is not a belief rooted in truth. At least not in God's truth. Maybe my own, but not God's. And that is even going to come to play even in today's podcast as we go over Romans chapter 4. But I want to make sure that everybody understands. Or at least I'm getting it out there and you can take it however you want to, I guess. The reason that I'm passionate about truth is because of the spirit of God that is in me. It's a spirit of truth. And I cannot stand to see truth fallen in the streets, in the church, of what is supposed to be a place that is a pillar and a buttress of truth. I believe it's what, 1 Timothy 3.15 that says that? that? That is how one ought to behave in the household of God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. When I see truth falling in the streets, there's a wit that comes out. And I don't want to come across as unloving because I, I'm going to tell you, I believe that the, one of the greatest acts of love that we can do as the church is that when somebody is in sin, that we can actually go to them and we can tell them how they're at fault. And then we can bring them back and save their soul from death. Because that's what, was it, James 5, 20 um, and 21 that says, if anyone among you wanders from the way of truth, know that whoever brings them back saves their soul from death covers a multitude of sins. I believe that's love. So my podcast channels, while it might come across as arrogance, it might come across as, as being haughty or even prideful, you can throw those slanderous accusations at me all you want to. I'm going to tell you that is, for me, it is the deepest seed of love in which I will tell you the things that I believe God has shown me in the congruency of his word and the fullness of his, of his word so as to lead you in a pathway to be sanctified to the fullest level that God wants for you. So with that said, um, I want to get into chapter 4. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, I talked about this at length in chapter 3, um, and I showed you how this word then is, a, is an indicator word that links a previous statement, thought, or whatever Paul was addressing previously, and he's about to link it to something he's about to say. So it's a connecting term, and I went through um, a, a whole discourse on that. I also went through the concept that many times in Scripture, when Paul says we, it's not always indicative of his standing with the church. Sometimes it's simply just his standing with the Jews as a kinsman according to the flesh, as he talks about in Romans chapter 9, I believe it's in verse 3, where he says, uh, my kinsman according to the flesh. So sometimes he says we, sometimes he says our, but he's not referencing the church, he's referencing the perspective of his kinsman according to the flesh of being yoked together as a Jew. Much like if I were to say, you know, I... Just because I'm an American does not mean that I, um, I am a Christian who happens to be an American. I could simply just be an American. So if I'm referencing 
we as citizens of the United States, I might say we, but I'm not lumping that into automatically as my standing with the church. I say that because he says this, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? I believe Paul is referencing his Jewish perspective, though you could probably make a case that maybe he's referencing just a physical side of what is now spiritual realized in the church. I would tend to lean towards he is referencing his position as being a Jew by birth. Like you can't take that away from him. He was born as a Jew. Um, And he's referencing Abraham as the forefather according to the Jewish heritage. He goes on, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to come. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Who Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All right, so this can be one of those passages. And, and let me just say, it is one of those passages that can tend to be a little confusing. Because on one hand, you're looking at this, and if you have a pretty good understanding of James chapter 2, of what it's talking about there, you're going to look at these two passages and be like, wait a second, on the surface, this seems like they're contradicting. What in the world? Because literally in James chapter 2, listen to what he says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? But here it just said, like literally, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted righteousness. I'm sorry, it is right before that in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, wait a second. Are you justified by works or are you not justified by works? Because it says in James 2, Abraham was justified by works. But here in Romans 4, it's saying a person is not justified by works, but by faith. What do we do? To, what are we to do with this? Well... Let me read the next couple verses, and then I'm going to kind of give you a synopsis of what I believe this is stating. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now I believe that that we is referencing the Jews, not necessarily the church. It was something that the Jews held to. He says this, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after... But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So, what is this stating? Because James 2 seems to be contradictory to Romans chapter 4. And I've talked about this at length, even I believe is in uh, Romans chapter 1 or 2 in one of the podcasts I did there, about the differences between works of the law and the law of works, as I even addressed at the end of my podcast in chapter 3. And I went into James 2 and I talked about how James 2 is not referencing works of the law. But I don't believe that this is necessarily the point that Paul's trying to make. And, and, and to just a, a synopsis of that, a reiteration of it, No one can come to God through works of the law of Moses. No one. 
Because a body has now been prepared in the, in the body of Jesus Christ, is what Hebrews chapter 10 says. So God will not look upon the works that a person does from the law of Moses and say, you can do enough good things to be in a right standing with me. It's impossible. You cannot do it. You must come through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? You cannot become justified before God through works of the law of Moses. It is something that can only be accomplished to be brought into an approved state before God by faith in Jesus Christ. However, James 2 is not referencing works of the law of Moses. It's referencing the works under the law of Christ. And that, supplementing those works to your faith, will find you justified in the end before God. In that approved state. Faith brings you in. And the works of Christ supplemented to that faith. Keep you in that faith. Until the very end. Okay. But I don't really believe that's exactly the point. That Paul's trying to make in Romans chapter 4. I think. According to what I've seen. In my, in my connection of James 2 with this. And in what Romans 4 is teaching. And the fullness of Romans. And the fullness of even the new covenant. I believe this is what he's stating. Now, works cannot bring us into this salvation. It doesn't matter what works they are, honestly. The works of the law of Moses or even the works of the law of Christ. You, you can't, they are two different things. You cannot do enough good works in order to come into this salvation. It is by, by grace through faith alone. You cannot come in by doing, um, having enough faith, but then having enough works coupled to that faith to be able to say, okay, now God, I'm worthy of being saved. It is by faith. And it is a grace that God extends to us. And he says, when that grace extended is coupled with, in harmony, the faith that you give unto that Father to believe in Christ, the Son of the living God, as the Lord of your life, he says, you will be saved. You don't have to be water baptized in order to be saved. You don't have to come in and do any amount of works. By works, no one will be justified. Okay? By works of the law. And I'm saying by works of the law because that's exactly what Galatians is talking about there when he says that. So we, you and I come into this grace by which we stand through faith. And God gives us access unto the righteousness of his son to clothe ourselves in that. So that we can come before the throne of grace and say, Father, I need help. And he says, you have it, my child, because you are in the garments of my son. Now, I could go onto a huge bunny trail on that one about the, what it means then to abide in Christ. Keeping those garments on, as Revelation 16 talks about, or even as Luke 12, I believe it's in 30, 35, and he says about staying awake, keeping your garments on, right? You have garments that you've been given, and you've got to remain in those garments in order to come to the throne of grace. Don't try to go into those garments in your flesh, or don't try to go to that throne in your flesh. You need to stay and abide in those garments of Christ. Okay? We come into this salvation through faith. And this is why I believe he's talking about Romans 4. That works cannot bring us into salvation. Nor can they alone sustain us in our salvation. This is what I mean. This is what I think. In verse 4... Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I believe that he's referencing to one who works apart from faith. Because that's what James 2 is referencing, is it not? 
Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He said, the one who wants to try to sustain or come into this faith by works alone and not by faith, that's not going to happen. But the one who comes in even without works accredited to his faith to say, you know what, I I don't have a whole lot of good to show to you, God. But what I do have is I come to you in belief that you sent Jesus and he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm surrendering to him as the Lord of my life. And God says, then come in, my child. I will give you this grace that I've offered that is to be met with faith. And I come in. I believe that Paul is referencing no amount of works is going to bring you in and no amount of works apart from faith is going to sustain you. It must be faith and works. Listen to what he says again in James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Notice that this didn't take place at the moment of whenever he... um, Believed in, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This was later on. So there is a continual justification that takes place when we supplement works to our faith. This is the point. It's not necessarily, though it is a true statement, that those works can prove that we really were saved. I don't believe that's what James 2 is, t- is talking about, nor do I believe it's the overarching theme through all of Scripture. Though there is truth there. I believe what he's talking about is, is that his works kept him in an approved state before God. And you might, well, well, that really makes it sound work-based. To actually have to approve things that are excellent and actually do what God wants us to do in order to be approved before him? Yeah. I believe that is. It's exactly what scripture teaches. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1, 8-9. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says, you have a job, Christian, to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He says, so that you would stand before him pure and blameless because you approved what was excellent and worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. You had works that you needed to supplement to that faith in order to keep you in an approved standing before God. This is simply just what Scripture is teaching. Listen to what he says even in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, starting in verse 14, since you are waiting for these, these promises that God has given to us, as the aforementioned, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He says, I want you to make sure you're approving what is excellent so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, supplementing works unto your faith so that you can remain in a justified position before God, ultimately with the foundation of your faith, but also with the works being supplemented to it so that you may be found by him without spot or blemish. Let me just tell you, if faith alone justifies us and makes us in a righteous standing before God from start to finish 
because we one time proclaimed that we believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, then how in the world could we ever stand before him without spot or, or I'm sorry, how in the world could we stand before him with a spot or blemish? You see, works are more integral to this process than what most people realize. It is faith is the bedrock of what guards us and protects us because that's what I think it's 2 Peter 1, 3-5 talks about. His divine nature, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to a life of godliness. And it goes on and it says, and that we are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. So faith is the bedrock of our salvation. But it is like a muscle. And those works must be supplemented to that muscle in order to make the muscle strong. And if you supplement the wrong kind of works, if all you do is eat Twinkies and Ding Dongs, then that muscle is going to get flabby. But if you exercise that muscle and you train it for godliness, then you will be found by Him without spot or blemish in the end. Listen to what he even says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Starting in, I think it's in 7 and 8. It's a very common passage in which Paul is trying to tell Timothy about this. So you can't really relegate it to the fact that, oh, well, yeah, he's just talking about people who, uh, you know, if you really are saved, you're going to do this. No, he's given instructions to Timothy to make sure that he does this himself and he does it in others. Listen to what he says. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Do you know who he's talking to? It's Paul talking to Timothy, his true child in the faith, of whom he has no one like, like Paul says about him. He says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness, or training unto being godlike, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, this is a really important concept because he's not talking about training yourself for godliness as just simply an act of believing. The training yourself for godliness is works. And he says, as we do it, it holds promise for this life and for the life to come. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, he goes on. He says, command and teach these things in verse 11. He goes on and he says um, in 15, practice these things. That's works, by the way. Immerse yourself in them, the works, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I could go through... So many more passages and talk to you guys about this concept. But I'm going to bring it back to Romans chapter 4 and just summarize it as this. You cannot have enough good works to get you into this salvation. God has made the one access point to come into this salvation by grace through faith. It is God's grace that has been extended to us. We did nothing to cause him to want to send Jesus. He did it of his own mercy and kindness and love. He sent Jesus for sinners as such as you and I. None of us were worthy of this salvation. None of us can be worthy of this salvation. There was only one and his name was Jesus and he was worthy. And God said, he's the access point. And how you come into that is through faith. 
It is not you have to be water baptized. It is not you have to do this. You not you have to do this. It's not you have to keep all 613 commandments. And then once you've ascended the pinnacle of being able to do it, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now you're worthy to come in. No, the rich young ruler tried that. Granted, it wasn't the 613. It was five of the Ten Commandments. And he goes to Jesus. He runs up to him and he says, Jesus, good, Lord, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And he's exclaiming this to him, falling on his knees. And Jesus says... Have you kept the commandments? He says, yeah, I've done all that since my youth. I've done it all. And he goes, yeah. And you're still on your knees before me knowing that you're unworthy of eternal life. So what does Jesus say? He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Then you can come follow me. What's he telling him? Is that the method? Is that the work we all need to do? Is this the one work? No. The one work Jesus says that leads to eternal life is that you believe. Jesus isn't telling him, go sell your possessions and then you can come follow me as if that's the requirement unto salvation. He says, I need you to let go of your life. I need you to surrender your life to me and I'm hitting the hot spot with your possessions because I know that's where your heart is. I need you to give me your life. And if you give me your life, then you can follow me because that's what Luke 9.23 says. Anyone who wants to come after him must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow after him. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my name's sake will save it. That's the call to salvation. And no amount of works can get you in. And apart from faith, no amount of works can do anything for you in the end. That is what I believe Paul is stating here. It must be faith and works. Notice what he said, even with this. It was not counted after, but before he was circumcised. He received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. In him, meaning in Christ, you also, believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed... With the promised Holy Spirit. Now this is a Greek word. It's for the gizo. And this Greek word does not mean like you were placed in a Ziploc bag and nothing can touch you. This word means a marking. Now when you and I come in, there's not necessarily, meaning into this salvation, there's not necessarily this marking on our forehead or, or something that gets tatted on our bodies that all of a sudden people are just like, oh, okay. No, this marking is something spiritual. It's of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit marks you. And I believe that it's referencing to all the heavenlies, all the unseen, all the spiritual realm, that's mine. Lay off. Can't touch them. Oh, you can oppress them because God's going to make sure that the righteous are tested. As he talked about even with Paul. This messenger of Satan that was sent to harass him. And he goes to Jesus. He said, hey Jesus, can you please get him to lay off my back? And Jesus says, no. But one thing that demon did know is he knew who Paul was. I believe it's in Acts, what, chapter 7 or 8, the sons of Sceva. Whenever they go in, the itinerary priests, and they go in and they, and they try to cast out the demons. And they say, in, in the name of, the, of Jesus that Paul proclaims. And the demons looked back at them and they said, Jesus we know. And Paul we know. Did you ever catch that? The demons know Paul. And I believe it was because he was marked with the Holy Spirit. Who is the down payment that God gives to all who believe until we acquire possession of the inheritance that God is keeping in heaven for us. In the combination of Ephesians 1 and going into Peter. 
So I believe that's what Paul's talking about. As I look at James chapter 2, because I don't even know if I even read it, where it says, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Notice, the faith is not brought to completion in the end apart from works. It must be both and. You must have faith and works in order to be justified in the end. That's the simple teaching of James 2. And I know that it can be confusing as we look in Romans 4, we look in Galatians, like no one will be justified by works. No one can be justified by works of the law of Moses. Can't be. It's impossible. Because now a body's been prepared. But James 2 isn't referencing that. You see, James is making a very clear teaching. Faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or brought to completion or brought to, the uh, teleo is the Greek word, to be made perfect and complete. To be accomplished. Similar to the word when he says work out your salvation, it means to bring into fruition or to complete and to accomplish your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it goes on, he says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See what he says in Romans chapter 4? And he was called a friend of God. You see, check this out, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James isn't referencing the justification process that takes place at the moment of your salvation. That is by faith alone. You can't do anything, though I could say submitting to God and believing in Him is a work, because even Jesus says there's one work that leads to eternal life that you believe. But I think that gets into the semantics. The reality is, it is by grace through faith that we become justified or an approved state before God. But you must supplement works to that faith in order to be justified in the end. This is why it says you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you'll receive what is promised. Hebrews 10.36. You can even go into Hebrews chapter 6. I think it's in verse 14 when he says, Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience or endurance inherit the promises. Paul talks about that I keep my body under control lest after preaching to others that I myself will be disqualified. He says, I am working out my salvation conjoined or in conjunction with my faith so that I might stand before him one day in the very end without spot and without blame. If I'm wrong, what have you lost? Think about it. If I'm wrong, that we need to supplement the works of Christ unto this faith in Christ in order to make sure that our faith and our salvation is preserved to the end. If I'm wrong, what have you lost? Let me ask you this. Those who teach that we are justified by faith alone and that works are not anything that we need to supplement and there's no amount of good works or bad works that are going to change what we did. Once saved, always saved. Let me just ask you this. If you're teaching that and you're, you're feeding this to the flock, what have people lost if you're wrong? Have you ever thought about that? You're out there just saying, well, if you're truly saved, then you will work. You will supplement the works. I disagree. 
I think a person can be truly saved and spend their 15, 20 years supplementing works to their faith and then they start wandering and they start straying and they stop supplementing works to their faith and their faith begins to weaken. And I don't believe that that means that if they actually then stop working out their salvation with fear and trembling that they didn't really get saved 20 years ago. I think that's, that's pretty dogmatic. That's pretty far-fetched actually to, to even think that. Because I don't believe that's what even 1 John is teaching. Let me just say this real quick as a side note. You want to study the book of 1 John, you've got to understand what John is actually trying to teach. He is stating this, that if apart from the Spirit you are practicing sin, and then you came into Christ, or you said you came into Christ, and then you continued on in that exact same sin, now supposedly with the Spirit, you're a liar. You didn't come to meet Christ. What 1 John 2, 3, and 4 are actually talking about is that a person apart from the the Spirit of God and the grace of God or the power of God upon their lives, when they were dead in their trespasses and they were enemies of God, born into a sinful nature, and sinful nature they were being under sin, governed by it, and they were practicing sin, and then they say they were born of God and they continue practicing in that same sin, they're a liar. They didn't meet God. They didn't come into a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because if they did, then that spirit would convict them of that sin, empower them to overcome that sin, and then move forward. However, what John is not talking about is a person who has been in the faith for 20 years, has been doing what needed to be done, has been living a righteous life, has been pursuing Christ, seeking after Him, studying His Word, prayerful in it. And by the way, before you say nobody uh, fits in this category... I know people who fit in this category. So don't tell me that there's not people out there who have not lived the righteous Christ-like life and have been pursuing Him for 20 years and then they fall away. Don't tell me that that person doesn't exist. Because it's one of the things that breaks my heart the most. What John is not referencing in First John is a person who lives out that Christ-like life for 15, 20 years. And then they begin to fall away. He's not saying that person never knew God. He is talking about a person who is unregenerate and then claims to have been regenerated but walks as an unregenerate person. That's what he's talking about. So don't confuse it. Because otherwise we have a whole lot of scriptures that are incongruent with one another. And so he goes on he says, look, the, the, the circumcision, that, or I'm sorry, going back into verse 11 of chapter 4. The purpose of all this, so he's talking about, was to make him the father of all. Not just the Jews, but of Jews and Gentiles. Who believe without being circumcised. So that the righteousness would be counted to them, meaning the Gentiles as well. A constant theme throughout the whole book of Romans. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Which, by the way, was without the law of Moses. Abraham walked in faith apart from the law of Moses. And I believe that's an overarching theme throughout this entire book. Is by works of the law of Moses you cannot be justified. Whether that is before or after your faith. You can't. It's impossible. 
You can't keep the feast well enough. You can't not eat certain amounts of food well enough. You can't keep the Sabbath well enough. There is nothing you can do in the law of Moses that will aid in you being justified before God. Because he has put his seal on Christ. And it is the works of Christ um, identified on the cross. It's essentially what even my pastor talked about yesterday. The law of love. That is the law that we are under. It's synonymous with the law of Christ. Remember what he says in Galatians um, 6.2 when he says, um, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what it is to bear somebody else's burden? That's called love. It's the law of Christ. And it's synonymous with the law of Christ. So whether you call it the law of love or the law of Christ, it's the same thing. So we walk in the footsteps of faith in the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Christ on the cross. Remember what Paul talked about when I came to Corinth? I preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. You know what that is? It's the law of love. And that's what he says in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That's not a message to the world. That's a message to the body. You love one another as I have loved you. By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, as I loved you, you love one another. That is the great commission that is given to us as the church. I know that go and make disciples, baptize them, that, that one gets the, the great commission. But let me just tell you, that is not the, the, the main mission for a Christian. Now you might be an evangelist and that might be your calling more so than somebody else. So for you, maybe that is a high priority on your mission. And that's totally fine. But let me just tell you real quick, right now, your main mission in this life is to love the body of Christ well, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That is your main mission. If you are not doing that, then let me just tell you, I don't care what works you are doing, it will not be as honoring to God as if you were. The churches are the glory of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 8.23 says. And it says that if you sin against a brother, you sin against Christ himself. 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 8.12. So let me just tell you real quick. If you are not loving the body of Jesus Christ as Christ loved us, and that's not your main mission in life, you're not serving her as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. 1 Peter 4, I believe it's 13. If you're not doing that, then you are missing the boat on the greatest commission that we have been given as the body of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says this, verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, you can go into Galatians chapter 3 and 4 to find out who this offspring really is, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, meaning the law of Moses, but through the righteousness of faith. Though the law attested to it, you can go back into chapter 3, verse 21 to find out that it says the law and the prophets attested, they witnessed to this coming faith that would be ours through Jesus Christ. But it didn't come through the law because the law came 430 years after this was even made, the covenant that God made with Abraham in faith. It says in verse 14, For if it is the, the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise void. He says, if it's the ones who are supposed to be adhering to the law of Moses that are going to be justified in the end, then he says, then what's the purpose of faith? Why did God institute faith in the, in the beginning? Why didn't he just give everybody the law and say, go and do that, and that's going to be your justifi justification? 
Instead, he painted a picture for us and he gave us faith before the law came. And he says this, For the law brings wrath. Again, this is referencing Torah. Okay? The law brings wrath, but where there is no Torah or no law, there is no transgression. Meaning, you can't do anything against it when it has now been fulfilled and abolished. And I might have some Hebrew roots people who are listening to this and they're like, wait a second, did you just, apparently this guy's never read Matthew 5. I'm going to say apparently you've never read Ephesians 2. And I, I would say you've probably never studied the word in depth enough to find how the, black, how the gray areas actually are black and white. Because it is very simple. Jesus did not come to abolish the law of Moses. It is still in effect for anyone who's not in Christ. But when we come into Christ, we find the law abolished. And because the law has been fulfilled. So it is no longer in standing over us. We are no longer under the law. In fact, if you want to just flip a few verses or a few pages in your Bible, here's what he says. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, in chapter 10, verse 3, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness... Um, oh, no, flip too many pages. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. He says, that When a person comes into faith in Jesus Christ, as Galatians 3 and 4 also uphold, you're no longer under the law of Moses. That is no longer the barometer in your life of what justifies you or even the righteous standard to which you have been commissioned to. So, the law is still there. He didn't come to abolish it. And the whole theme of Matthew 5 is, if you want to try to get into heaven apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Good luck. So the law is still there. For anyone who is not in Jesus Christ. Because we now have a faith that has brought about a righteous standing before God. Clothing us in a garment that we can now come before Him. Not because of our merit according to the law of Moses. But because of our merit according to our faith in Jesus Christ. He says that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not your power at work within yourself, but God's power at work within you. That's what grace is. God is saying this. When you, um, as a Jew, were given the law of Moses, those who were going to find the life of God were those who were going to do the law of Moses. Okay? In their own strength, in their own effort, by their own merit. He says, but, the, but here's the deal. Now that Christ has come, I have extended my power to you. Not, not your own. It's not your own power. I have now given through Jesus Christ access to my power, which is what grace is. He says that the, the promise may rest not on just unmerited favor but on God's power to accomplish in you 
what he says he can accomplish. And it makes a whole lot more sense now when you go study Philippians chapter 2 and 12 through 14 when he talks about it like this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, I want you to achieve your salvation. I want you to bring it to completion. I want you to work it out, not in your power, but in his. Because the very next verse says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's grace in you, his power, his divine influence in your life that is now working out what is pleasing to him, namely the image of Jesus Christ on the cross to love his body. To be that holy temple, that spiritual priesthood, that royal priesthood, a holy nation, as First Peter 2 puts it. It's his grace in us that's doing it. Not his unmerited favor in us, but his power and divine influence within us. That's why it says, like I said, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He says, my power is now at work in you. This is why it says in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, when he is now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you could think or ask according to the power at work within you. Grace is not just God's unmerited favor to the believer. Grace is God's divine influence and his power in the believer when it's met with faith and humility. Which by the works, or by the way, humility is a work. Therefore, for God's grace to be given to you, for it to be reckoned to your account and applied and utilized, it requires a work. Therefore, it cannot be defined as unmerited favor. Favor? Yes. Absolutely. Unmerited? No. And he goes on, he says this, Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all. He's talking about whether it's to the Jew or whether it's to the Gentile. It doesn't matter. This grace has been extended so that when you come into Christ and then you humble yourself before him and you submit to him as Lord of your life and you act accordingly, then this grace will be utilized as God's power in your life to achieve what God wants you to do. And it's no longer on human effort or on human will as it was under the law of Moses. He says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. See, the law doesn't matter. Only faith working through love. Whether it's the Jew or Gentile, it says Abraham is the beginning as his offspring is sent in Isaac as a foreshadow to what God did through Jesus Christ so that the Jew or the Gentile might come in. In the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. Notice, if a person can weaken in faith, then that means that, it, that faith can actually grow. As also Paul puts it in other passages where he says, I see that your faith and your love for one another is growing. Let me just tell you, if faith can weaken and grow... What do you think causes it to weaken or grow? Works. You see how they have to be active along with your faith? Not as a proving your salvation, but as a preserving your salvation. He goes on, he says, When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, who, by the way, was about 90 years old, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He says, because he maintained this faith and he supplemented works to that faith so that that faith did not weaken as he continued in his belief, it was continually counted to him as righteousness. And this is actually, even if you want to go into the Greek, you can find the word for believes. The one who believes has eternal life. The Calvinist and the Arminist both agree on the, the terminology of this word, pistio. And it's a, it's a present tense verb, which basically means ongoing, continual it wasn't just uh, they had a belief at one time. It was that they had an ongoing belief. They held that belief all the way to the end. And I would be in total agreement with the fact that the one who holds their belief all the way to the end will have eternal life in the end. It's not just you prayed a prayer when you were nine at some Awana meeting, and somebody told you about hell, and they said, hey, I'm going to need you to, to pray this prayer, just repeat after me, and if you don't want to go to hell, and you want to go to heaven because God loves you, and we quote John 3.16 to them, and then these kids, they utter these prayers after these people who don't even know the gospel, and yet they're put in a position to try to lead a child to the faith. They utter this prayer and then now they're told, write that date down in your Bible and that's the date that you were sealed and nothing can take that away from you. So now we have these nine-year-olds becoming 19-year-olds, becoming 29-year-olds, becoming 39-year-olds and they're basing everything that they've ever believed and done in their life based on the fact that at nine they prayed a prayer and they think they're good. And that's not the case. And yet that is how a generation of people are being raised up. Because I can tell you, I used to go door to door and knock on people's doors and ask them about their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would say probably 50% of the time, most people were like, oh yeah, I prayed that prayer. Well, do you go to church now? No, I don't have time for that. I work on Sundays. People are basing their salvation in the end because at some point in their life when they were a young child, they were fed a load of garbage as to what the gospel is. And they were not informed of the fullness of it and the cost. And they're going to stand before him and they're going to say, why did you lie to me? I thought I was good. These people told me I was good. This pastor told me I was good. I have the date marked down in this Bible that I received in my baptism. And nobody ever told them. You know what I'm doing to you right now? I'm telling you. Because I don't want it on my record that when I stand before the Holy of Holies, I don't want Him to say, why didn't you inform people of the cost? Why didn't you inform people of the true gospel? How dare we give a lukewarm, watered-down, diluted gospel message and play with people's souls? He says in 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now here's what's interesting to me. What he doesn't say is it is counted to us who believe. Now isn't that a fascinating statement? 
Because if you were to look at it today, you would say that many people would say that, oh, no, 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 I am the righteousness of God. I'm the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at me, he just sees the blood of Jesus. Doesn't, he doesn't see what I do. Let me just tell you, that's a man-made teaching and a cliche statement that has no bearing in the scriptures. He says, it will be. Future tense. And this is, makes a lot of sense in what Paul says in Galatians 5.5 5 when he says, we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. It also fits with what he says in 2 Timothy 4.7-8 when he says that um, I kept the faith. Notice, <laughs> these are all three the things that he says, works that he had to do by the grace that God afforded him to do it as he utilized that grace through humility and faith. He walked in the footsteps of faith and he walked in the pathway of humility and as such God gave him the grace to do these things. So it's when your effort and your works are supplemented in harmony with God's power that Christianity is made possible. Don't think that it is only by God and His sovereignty. You have a part to play in this too. But he says, I kept the faith. I finished the race. I fought the good fight. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which God will award to me. Notice, hasn't already awarded. He doesn't say, which God has awarded to me. He says, which God will award to me. But not only to me, but to also all who have loved His appearing. Paul's speaking in a futuristic tense about this righteousness that will be His. The promise of righteousness has been given to us. The access into the garments of righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ has been given to us through faith. But it is our job to abide in it. It's our job to utilize the grace and the righteousness that has been given to us. So that on that last day we can say as Paul did. I fought the fight. I kept the faith. I finished the race. And God will uphold his end of the bargain and the covenant that he has made with those who are in Jesus Christ to say, if you endure till the end, you will gain everything that I've promised in my son. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. So if you are not abiding in Christ Jesus on that last day, you don't get in. Because his promises are only for those who are in Christ. That is why you will see constantly over and over and over in Him. And I want to prove that in just a second. He says, um, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus became the source is what that's saying. You want to be justified in the end? It's going to be through Him. You have to be found in Him without spot or blemish. And the only way to do that is for one, you enter in through faith. And as the whole aspect of this chapter is about, it is not about works of the law of Moses. And I could even say, if you're trying to work out your salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trying to look like Jesus, you'll be a miserable replica if you don't have true faith in Him. It begins with faith. And then once that faith enters in, that faith needs to be coupled with the works of Christ in order to be justified in the end through the person of Jesus Christ. 
That's why it says, therefore, in chapter 5, and I'll address this in my podcast as we go on, but therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Have you ever picked up on that? We have not obtained this grace through faith in which we stand. We've obtained access by faith into this grace in which what allows us to stand. Which is why in Ephesians 6, he gives us the command to stand firm in the Lord. The only way that we can do that is through the grace of God, the power of God working within us. And the only way that we can do that and have that grace working in us is through faith and humility. You do those two things, the grace of God will be powerful among you. This is why Paul says, may grace be multiplied to you. This is why Paul begins and ends every letter that he writes with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace is what makes Christianity possible. And in order for you to have that divine influence and power on your life, you must come to Him and you must deny yourself and you must surrender to Him as the Lord of your life. And then you gain access into this grace. But for it to be applied and utilized, you must submit yourself to Him. Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Y'all be blessed.